welcome to another episode of the Live to Accomplish podcast with Nathan Shooter. To discover more insightful episodes, blogs, videos, and resources, visit nathanshooter.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Live to Accomplish podcast. My name's Nathan, and it's my job on these series of blogs and videos and podcasts is to help you and I both unpack simple ways that we can create significant outcomes. Because I honestly, truly believe that creating great things or good outcomes and achievements doesn't have to be complicated. And so as part of that, we need to learn how to work with other people and how to be able to engage in conversation, which may be with a person who doesn't 100% agree with us all the time. And that's okay. So that's what democracy is all about. And today's episode is going to center around the idea of contributors versus critics and how that plays out in our political arena. And that's why I've invited Troy Grant. And he is the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales here in Australia. And he's a man who's served on the front line as a policeman and a police inspector for over 22 years. And if you were to fast forward his career to the here and now, he's a minister with many portfolios in the New South Wales government. Thanks for joining us here today, Troy. Thank you, Nathan. Nice to join you. So can you just, for the listeners who perhaps don't know a lot about um, yourself, just give us a bit of a background about um, who you are and a bit of work and personal life. Sure. So, member for Dubbo in the New South Wales Parliament. Uh, I uh, have been in Parliament for the last six years, elected first in 2011, and uh, became the Deputy Premier of New South Wales during my term, and I've served in various ministerial roles, including trade, regional infrastructure and services, major events and tourism, uh, liquor, gaming and racing, uh, the arts, uh, justice, police and emergency services, and they're the two portfolios I currently hold. Awesome. And prior to all this as well, you were a, a policeman and you worked your way up through um, those those ranks as well. So tell us about some of those earlier days where you, I guess, came out of school and realised that you wanted to do something for other people. Well, I was uh, raised in, in country New South Wales in the northern New England, uh, pretty much just north of Tamworth for the majority of time. Spent some early years at Moree in, in the far west. And I uh, had a policeman father and a, and a nurse mother who were very engaged in the community. Uh, lived in a little bit of a dysfunctional household as a, as a kid. So I was uh, really raised, as the, as the saying goes, not just by my family, I was sort of raised by the village. Mm. And it was a small community that taught me the, the value of contributing back. Um, both my parents were heavily involved in local community groups, sporting groups and, and those sorts of things. So. It just became entrenched in me and when I joined the police force after leaving school I was posted to the country, uh, firstly at Gilgandra just north of Dubbo and it was just part of me and and part of the work environment and and the colleagues I had that we did our job uh, on our rostered shifts but we then gave more and a bit of above uh, after hours to again sporting groups or charities and it just became sort of who we are and, and did that for 22 years before going into parliament. Excellent. So I guess one of the things that uh, motivated me to do this particular episode, as we spoke before, um, before this interview, is that um, I just got really angry one day. And I just kind of like one day I thought, how can we help us as Australians or as Americans or people all over the world, whoever, wherever you might be listening, how do we, I guess, treat our politicians better? Because we are expecting a lot of them yet we're not, we're not speaking well of them. And um, there's an old saying, you know, like you get the leaders you deserve. And I think that if we're going to be able to want the best out of our politicians, then we should also speak about them as such. So 
one of the, um, I guess, motivations for me is to find out how can people contribute instead of just criticize? Because criticizing is actually pretty easy to do. And I know that anyone can fall into that trap, but what is maybe not as natural is how to we how we can contribute. So in your experience, like what has that been like in terms of a feeling to you when you have been criticized by someone? Because people think that, you know, you're kind of like away and aloof and you're, you're in poli- uh, politician circles and you're untouchable. So when they say mean things, somehow it doesn't reach your heart and doesn't affect you personally. Is that true? No, look, it's very, it's not true. And I guess it depends on your own personal makeup and, and your own resilience and your own life experiences to how it impacts you and how you respond to it. But no, it's, it's a tough job and it's getting harder. Uh, the advent of social media is such a positive in, in many ways, but it's equally a negative that it gives people uh, an unedited opportunity to personally attack, particularly community leaders or politicians through social media. And there's no accountability uh, for that sort of criticism. So you get keyboard warriors out there, you get people who uh, through anonymity can really do some very vicious and serious things to you. And in my own personal experience that led to death threats uh, to myself and to my family and my staff and and those sorts of things are, are very hard to to deal with on a on a personal level and the real tragedy in it all that a lot of it was built on myth uh, innuendo perception um, mistruths and not the reality so when that is fevered and, and garners momentum it's even more difficult to uh, cope with on a personal level i guess yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important for people to realize that before social media, there were still plenty of opportunities to be able to dialogue with politicians, but they were slower. And I guess they were more measured because people had more time to consider how they were going to com- compose their um, their thoughts or their, their comments. And so um, one of the things that um, I heard recently is the truth is actually three parts, what you think happened and what the other person think uh, thought happened, and then actually what happened. And with the media and, um, you know, some would refer to as fake news and others rumors, however you want to want to term it, we have a responsibility on social media to actually do our homework. So what are the ways people can, say, read a claim in a, in a paper or online? And then what, that, what, should, what should they do with that? Should they just run with it or should they try and do some fact checking? Or how do we do that every day? Yeah, look, I think that they've got a responsibility to be informed and, and that is a shared responsibility it's government's job to inform the community absolutely and i think there's not apportioning blame here i think there's blame on all sides i think really from 2007 and with the 24-hour news cycle coming up that politicians moved into having demands on them that just weren't reasonable so they just had to put content out there Mm. so whenever there wasn't enough substance to the content uh, they got into political spin and that sort of got out of control, which then eroded the credibility of them in the public's mind. Um, but when they then do talk of substance and truth and accuracy, there's already a, a developed cynicism there, which then fuels uh, the ignorance uh, that exists and people who don't care about being informed who then just jump straight into the, the attack mode and or um, you know, pushing down a, a non-factual uh, front. So. I think there's fault on all areas and what it is actually doing is creating an environment where if we keep going down this path, uh, we'll we'll have a community that's not governable Mm. because people will act and react in extreme ways 
to myths in perception rather than substance and reality. And politicians, conversely, will moderate what they do and how they do it to try and mitigate how much grief they cop uh, as well. So there's no winners out of that. And Thomas Jefferson made famous the saying that the community get the, gets the government they deserve. Uh, so if we as individuals are not prepared to do our own research, be informed and actually speak about matters that we have genuine concern and have every right to raise with elected representatives and just run with the perception of issues, well, you're going to get the government you deserve. And conversely, the uh, political class, if we don't uh, talk to our communities in a more honoured, honest, measured and less spin manner, then we're going to get what we're going to cop. So there's, uh, I think there's onus on both sides of the debate to do better than we currently are because I fear for where we are at the moment. The the, the tone uh, is um, at an all-time low, on my observation. Sure, there's been periods in our history where you know, angst has been probably greater and we talk about the war periods is probably where we got the fever pitch or the Great Depression. Those significant events have brought out you know riotous behaviour and or public protest to a probably a higher degree than we have now but while we have a greater law and order and social behavior standards it's this uh, capability that we have through what we spoke about earlier social media and that that's really dragging down the political debate and the community um, discussion uh, to levels that's uh, on a very dangerous path mm. and I think um, like I like how you mentioned that there's an onus on both side A and B um, because we're not apportioning blame but it's just this I guess the temperature is rising for some reason and I feel like that um, when there is a, an issue for debate particularly in Australia and America at the moment it feels like that if you even have a view which is not compliant with what's been mostly said then you're immediately oppositional when actually yep. you're just maybe maybe arguing the validity of that idea, but you're not op- opposing the idea. Yep. So how do you think we ended up on this edge where whenever we say something, it's like people are already got their feet on the edge ready to jump. Yep. How do you think we ended up here? Well, I think we got into uh, a mentality where uh, there was a perception, right or wrong, that the squeaky wheel got the most oil. So the louder you were and the more noise you created, the more support or funding or attention to your issue that you received. Uh, not whether that was the most meritorious, yeah. it was just whoever yelled the loud. And then you get all these political grandstanders out there and, and we've got quite a few in this community who frustrate me because I've spoken to them about uh, things that they've put into the, the community space. And I say, you, well, you can't do that. And they say, well, I don't care. And I think that's where the accountability comes in. Well. How, how do you get away with it not caring and what about the impact you're having on everyone and more broadly your community so that's why there's fault on both sides it's not just the community and, and I recognize that but I think it's consistency and accountability and I think everyone's got to doesn't matter if you yell and shout it's what's heard and um, everyone stopped listening I think and then everyone just kept shouting and I think that's where we got to the edge and we just need to stop take a breath and actually listen and stop shouting and I think that'll be a good step forward Mm. yeah there's some good ideas um, there for all of us in terms of like looking in our own backyard first before we go and inspect someone else's so when we when we look at a a newspaper headline um, what percentage of that is true or untrue we don't know so um, what do you personally do when when you're scrolling through your your iPhone which I'm sure years ago would have been a Blackberry Mm -hmm. and um, 
then you come across these news articles. So in your mind, what, what do you do to go and check out whether this is actually a valid story or not? Well, I go to the source um, in the most instances, but in my position I have staff that I can rely on, whether it's locally here in the electorate or if it's a ministerial issue. But even people uh, scan or they, they see a headline, for example, and the headline doesn't even reflect the content of the story. So when there's a bad headline, I've often rung the journalist and said, what's the go here? And they said, we're not responsible for the headline. We just write the story. They have a sub-editor that does the headline and they've got a different mandate. Ooh. The journalist has got a job to you know, investigate and report the issue. Uh, the sub-editor's job is to get a headline that will sell a paper. So there's a uh, you know, contradiction there. It's an oxymoron on, on how that works. So uh, that, that's the environment. So I think you've just got to fact check you know, is the important thing. And often you'll get a very bad headline, but you read the substance of the story and it's very, very different. And it's completely opposite to the headline in a lot of examples. So I've experienced that. You, you, go, to the, you go to the source, but the damage that causes, um, because people this day and age are time poor, uh, they scan things rather than read, they and they look at the headline, that's what sticks with them, and they don't take much, well, they take less notice of the substance of the story, and that's a, a real concern. Mm. And I think on that note, actually, too, um, listeners, if you are in a position where you are scanning, you see a really terrible headline, and then the body of the actual content is not reflective of the headline, don't do that newspaper the privilege of giving them a click. Don't um, reward them by pushing that article up in the rating because every time you do or you share it or you just have it in your history, it actually gives them the numbers for them to rank and bring that article to the top. So absolutely, check the headline. And also, another thing that I, that I do is in Apple News and whatever other apps you might use to facilitate your news feed is to report something. And I know that we're in, in a society now where everyone seems to be I guess very good at finding a way to be uh, offended. <laughs> so what I'm not talking about here is taking offense to an article, but if you think there is just cause to report something, do it. Because we have an obligation um, democratically as well as just ethically to report bad reporting, as, as it were. Yeah. So if you have that facility in your, your app that you're scanning, then make sure you avail yourself of that. So now let's talk about um, an example here where um, there's disagreement, but what I try to casually do is disagreement without dishonor. So say, for example, you're in a heated argument with someone over politics or whether it's just at a barbecue lunch about something completely different. How can our listeners try and separate the, the character of the person from the content of the conversation? How do we do that? Because we don't seem to be very good at um, separating the, the person from the principle. So how, how do we do that? Well, uh, look, I think it's an excellent question and uh, it's not easy to do that. And I, I think you just need to go on the record of the person and, and give that some level of credit uh, before you jump to the extreme uh, polar opposite at the end. So if the person's got, you know, eight out of ten things right or you're in agreement with them and they do one thing that you disagree with for whatever reason and how much you disagree with it, I think there's too quickly a tendency to write that person off. Mm. So I think you essentially go to the scorecard uh, of their performance and you can always agree to disagree. The, that's democracy. Not everyone agrees. The, mm. the majority usually wins uh, for, these, for these issues. And there's countless examples of that happening. So um, you now I've lived a, an experience where I was the minister in the, in the controversial Greyhounds issue. Mm -hmm. And you'd have conversations with people who 
you uh, work with for a long, long period of time, uh, worked very successfully with, and uh, they had a very, very strong different view to the decision the government made, of which then I was the, the poster boy or the, the front for that. And their attitude changed very dramatically. They, they wrote me off and said, well, you're no good. And you can argue back, well, hang about, how about examples A to Z? Mm. And they go, well, I don't care anymore about that. You've done that one thing to offend me. So I think there's uh, an imbalance uh, of that. Uh, council amalgamations is another great example where um, relationships, very positive, um, were established and lots of great things uh, were achieved uh, working as a team with members of local government and the state government because we disagreed on where the amalgamations ended up. They just junk all that previous achievements and joint achievements and take an adversarial approach and and that that's not good for the broader community. Uh, so personal gain or personal um, vindication or validation um, isn't always the greater good uh, if you can put a bit of balance to it. So it's a tough one because ultimately the only one that judges whether you're right or wrong is yourself because mm. it's your opinion and, and everyone's entitled to it and they just have to do it in probably a more respectful, balanced and measured way. Yeah, because I think there's a difference between um, arguing with with content versus just a character assassination. Because, so for example, all you have to do is just spend 20 minutes on Twitter and you'll see it. So what I find is that people... Um, when they don't have a, a good, strong argument against what you're saying, they tend to just go for an attack on character. Yeah, so definitely. really, to me, when, when someone is attacking you personally or your character, they're saying, I'm red flagging the fact that I've got nothing. Yeah, I, I don't have a valid... Lost, they've lost the substance of the argument, but what they haven't done is lost the argument purely on the emotive level, and then it can spear out of control very quickly and, and things get can get very nasty and... And I've seen that happen on a daily basis, and that's really sad uh, that we've got to that level. So again, I think it comes down to the onus on everyone to, you know, deep breath. Uh, let's think about this maturely for the greater good. If you just keep going down this path, you, everyone's going to end up being a loser. Absolutely, and people are going to get more hurt than they need to be. And um, when it comes to the digital democracy that we're in now, um, what are the ways that people can, say for example, you're our, our state uh, electoral representative, but you also were um, the deputy premier for our state as well. So there are channels we can get to such people as yourself. So how should we, if we want to be heard, and heard, I guess, with some kind of element of credibility, not just someone who's having a good rant, how should we kind of structure our comment to someone like yourself, whether it's social or email or whatever, what's the best way to actually write out our thoughts? Look, in six years of experience in, in politics now and with 22 years of policing, is it's really easy to either be an armchair critic and sit back and, and tell everyone what the problem is. Uh, the greatest skill is coming up with a solution. So I've always found that um, you know we can easily readily identify the problems. That's easy. Uh, and we can all whinge about it or heighten how bad it is to whatever degree we, we have a personal agenda about it. That's easy and it's a little bit can be lazy and, and people are lazy in their arguments. They have a whinge and they feel like it's off their chest. They've done their bit. Well, I challenge them that you know the, the, the challenge is to actually present options or solutions or strategies on how to address the issue. So uh, on most occasions, a lot of the issues are one that we're generally more, we are aware of, but what we don't always have are the answers. Uh, 
So I think the community can help uh, and gain credibility that you're talking about, but not by not just identifying the problems, but actually offering solutions as well. You know, and then it's our job to be honest whether they're achievable or not, whether they are realistic or not. And that's, I think, will then raise the, the debate and the correspondence and the and there's so many mediums in which you can do that now. Uh, but ultimately it just comes down to a simple word that is often forgotten uh, and that's respect. If you do mm. it in a respectful way, you give respect, you get it back. It's uh, one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. It's uh, one of the easiest things to do but and it has the greatest benefit, but it's probably one of the ones that's uh, been forgotten about most readily as well. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to, when they decompose their ideas to send to, to politicians, every email that I try and send or receive, I try to look through my three A's, which are acknowledge, act, or appreciate. So, for example, we know what the problems are. So people, when they talk to politicians, I think when they try to communicate, there's an, an assumption that the politician doesn't know that this is a problem. And that's incredibly naive because they would know that there's an issue. So really, in, in most cases, they do exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, there are cases like you say where you do get that information firsthand about the issue. Yeah. So acknowledging, so acknowledging the issue or or act. How can we actually contribute to the idea rather than just saying we've got a problem? Then we've got a problem that that doesn't make sense. You know. So um, I think um, when it comes to collaborative approaches to politics and corporate leadership. How do you think, like just talking now from you to people who are in corporate, maybe C-level uh, leaders, how can you give them advice on how to be more collaborative when it comes to, uh, I guess, talking with people who are um, ground level? Yeah, look, in today's modern society, the most dominant feature we have out there is self-interest. So I think um, you've just got to demonstrate to them it's actually in their self-interest to be more collaborative. The two may not always line up. Uh, people are very guarded and protecting their pri- their privacy and all their silo mentality and this is some of the things in governments are challenges to to get the health department to talk to the police department to talk to the um, education department because the challenges have a commonality to them but they look in silos or in isolation of how they can uh, address the issue and then end up spending twice as much effort and time and money mm. getting halfway there but if they were collaborative and were able to in their own self-interest spend less of their money dealing with a problem if they shared resources or shared information it's actually a better outcome so Mm. i think we just need to demonstrate how that works uh, more often Uh, take the time and and a lot of people will come up to me and, and talk to me about an issue and then when you get time to explain it or actually put some reality or context behind what it is they go well i wasn't aware of that and Okay, I can see it's not all here, it's a bit there, and then they walk away with a better appreciation, but a better um, level of optimism that there may be actually a light at the, ten- at the end of the tunnel for their grievance in the first place. And when they first come up, it's just, you know, us, me versus you. This is, I have this issue, I see you as being the obstacle or in the road of it, then they understand, well, you're not actually, you might be an ally or someone that can collaborate to help me get the problem fixed. And, and I see that day in and day out that's that's very very common and for the corporate world then it's in their own self-interest to be more collaborative and and listen to other points of view because they may well not take on board everything they hear or see but there might be some little golden nuggets in there that ultimately 
in their own self-interest uh, gets them a better outcome. Collaborative leadership is different, like you were saying, to the solo mentality where you would have that uh, symbiosis. So there's working together, but then there's also working together for mutual benefit. Yeah. And I think, yeah, in, in, I guess, the corporate world or the, poli- uh, the politicians' uh, agendas, whatever they're kind of like looking to drive, if there is a way to make it a symbio- symbiotic relationship, then, then they should because otherwise there's, there's no overlap and there's t- too much money and time and effort yeah. um, spent on individual projects where they could have been combined. So just, I guess, if you were to able to say to a, a young person who's just emerging from school or from university, what's the best way to start engagement in politics? Well, each of the political parties have um, their, their young I'm in the national parties. You've got the young nationals, you've got young liberals, young Labor uh, as examples. So depending on where their ideology sits, um, you know, do your research. What, what do these parties actually offer? What are their ideas? Or you can be independent in your political views, um, but there's plenty of ways. You, you can actually get into a community organisation and, and get an understanding of how governance works and therefore how that community organisation would relate to a local, state or a federal Gut layer of government. Um, obviously, local councils uh, are an opportunity to, to get engaged, whether it's getting elected or even being on a community committee for local government. Uh, there's regional bodies, uh, regional organisations, business chambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's plenty of uh, those scope and industry bodies, plenty of escape for that uh, front door in, I guess, and depends on the individual as to what you would like to achieve out of it if it's to be a representative ultimately and have a role like I've got um, then it's about getting experience in talking to people digesting a lot of information quickly and then coherently being able to articulate it back uh, so you know you can get into organisation service groups uh, where you get to do some more public speaking that would complement uh, those other sort of interests as well so there's plenty of avenues uh, for direct entry that we've got youth parliaments uh, that run at both the state and federal level uh, they're always been exciting and, and I have people during their gap year in my office come on board to work and kids come in for work experience as well so there's plenty of different avenues uh, there depending on the level and extent of their interest that's great yeah I think it's really good to have like a layered approach to getting into the conversation whether you were saying like a more direct actually going into parliament or to be involved in boards which um, are involved in some capacity and 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 i've had that personal experience so when i came into the police you know i was on the blue light disco committee i started as the public officer then the secretary became the treasurer then the president i was in the alliance club i started as a member became the secretary that and then I was, you know, on a golf club board. I was a board member, uh, the captain, the president, all those sorts of things. So there's pathways within each of those organisations as well. Uh, and then I've done work with charity groups and done some individual things as well. So, and that I guess was all good preparation uh, for me. And then professionally in the police force, yes, I did my day day's duties, but I was also on, you know, police committees or training groups or projects and pro- learn how to project manage. So. You use all those skill sets and it becomes instinctive, I guess, and that then helps you be prepared to be a representative or be engaged in, in government or community representation at some level. That's right. It's not just like a, a race to the top straight up. In It's not going to happen in two weeks. It's, no, it's, a, it's a small I, I contributions. Love this, I love this story that uh, I'll never forget a young constable who was in the job 12 months uh, said to me, uh, and I was a sergeant at the time, you know, I want to I want to be in the homicide squad. I want to do it now. And it's like this immediacy 
and this uh, instant gratification that we have in our community at the moment, that's just not realistic. No, you know, you might have the title of being a homicide detective, but that's a, a skill that takes years to craft mm. and you have lots of experience about what to look for at crime scenes, what to think about, what to examine, just, you know, learning about people's emotions. You know, when you have a homicide investigation, it's not just the victims you deal with, but potential suspects and witnesses. You only learn those skills by experience, by doing in a lot of other mediums, um, behavioural analysis and all that goes into it. It's not just about filling in this form and having a badge, I'm now a homicide detective. It's what makes up being a homicide detective. So I said to this young constable, it's great you've got that aspiration, uh, but this won't be happening in the next three years. Here's your pathway uh, that I suggest you follow. Uh, and coincidentally, that officer is now in the homicide squad. So oh, excellent. I'm glad they followed the advice. Yeah, obviously it was good advice. I think it's important for us to balance that sense of vision with um, the more, like you say, the, the immediacy of the day-to-day life, which we find ourselves in the here and now. Um, yeah. So yeah. for myself, when I started Thrive Media 13 years ago, I had $20, went down to the bank, went down to Commonwealth and the rest is history. But I named it Thrive Media because I knew that I'd eventually be doing TV commercials or um, podcasting, this kind of thing. And that didn't happen overnight, but probably 10 years into it, then we started doing um, the stuff that I dreamt about back then. So for those of us who are in positions of leadership, whether it's political or corporate or even just other NGOs, you can get kind of emotionally hammered by the, the stresses and the criticisms. So you're talking directly to them now. So what, what can you talk to them into their heart and mind to encourage them? How can you, is, is it in the end, is politics even worth it? Should we, you know, stay in it if we're a politician? Is leadership still worth it? How can you encourage them? Yeah, look, I say it is. Uh, is the, the days where you can make a contribution in the positive far outweigh the negative. Yes, there are plenty of negatives, but, uh, you know, it's like the glass half full, half empty mm. debate. You can look at it either way. And I think um, if you value what you're contributing and put a true value to it, uh, then it's a privilege to be in those sorts of positions. It really is. To serve others before yourself, I don't think there's anything greater you can do as a human being or a member of any community. And when you get you know, those little nuggets of success, uh, it just means the world. And, and my personal example is you know, we've had great success here in building infrastructure and hundreds of millions of dollars in hospitals and roads and and all those sorts of things and i'm very proud of those sorts of accomplishments but people ask me you know what are you most proud of i'm most proud of during the campaign when a a mother brought her child into me and asked for a resource that the government had taken away to be reinstated so that resource could teach her child how to read Um, and a couple of years later she walked a young fella into this very conference room and he read for me uh, so to make that sort of a contribution to somebody's life, I didn't do a heap. I just played my role and a small part in help facilitating the, the reintroduction of that, that service. So that's life-changing at times. And, and for that young fellow now, uh, what would his world look like if he couldn't read or write? To Now what does it look like potentially that he can uh, because of those skill sets? So the little things are more important often than the big things and mm, you just absolutely. need to keep that into perspective and understand the real impact that staying in leadership roles or serving can have on people's lives and I think that's encouragement enough. 
Awesome. That's some great advice there. So if you're someone who is already um, in a position of like, say, uh, you're a CEO or you're a strategist for a big company or you're in politics, never allow yourself to, I guess, be beaten down by the the things that happen every day on social media, whatever. And the times where you do get beaten down, unearth those things that are an encouragement to you. Look at some of the milestones that you've reached with your team or with your family. And then I guess give yourself some reason to find um, hope again. So thanks very much for um, spending time with me today on this episode. You're welcome, Nathan. And um, if you're wanting to find out more about Troy, um, you can go and visit his website, troygrant.com.au. And where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So uh, on all the platforms, uh, YouTube, all those things that are both great and disastrous at the same (laughs) time. But look forward to continuing to make contributions wherever I can. Excellent. Thanks for your time. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan. Hey, thanks for sticking with me to the end of this conversation. And I'm really glad you joined me on this episode because it's one that I feel passionate about. We need to spend a little bit of time out of the hustle and bustle of our day to think, hey, did I criticize someone today or did I actually actively help contribute with a solution-focused mentality? What did I do to actually contribute to an issue rather than just merely calling it out and criticizing it? Because it's one thing to be able to bring something to someone's attention, yet it's another to do it with grace and with a solution-focused approach. So how can you do that this week? What are some simple things that you can do that, who knows, might contribute to a really positive and significant outcome for you and for someone else? So head over to Facebook or to Twitter and to have a bit of a a think out loud and maybe even encourage someone else to think about what they can do to contribute rather than just criticize. Thanks and I'll join you next time. Thanks for joining us today. To connect with Nathan, simply visit facebook.com forward slash Nathan Shooter blog or Twitter and Instagram using at Nathan Shooter. We also invite you to comment, ask questions and subscribe to the email editions at nathanshooter.com.